to all who are weary and need rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who feel worthless and wonder if God cares, to all who fail and desire strength, to all who sin and need a savior, this church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus Christ, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the guilty, the justifier of the inexcusable, the friend of sinners. Welcome to the Well Church Sermons. Acts chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. Um, the words will be up on the screen. Um, we also have Bibles in the back if you need to grab a Bible, and um, that's a gift. You can take it home with you. But um, let's jump into the word. Acts 15, verses 22 through 29. This is a letter from the elders and apostles to a church in Antioch, okay? So we're going to be reading a letter. Um, the word of the Lord reads this way, verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. To, uh, wait, sorry, the brothers, both apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia and greetings. So we already see right there, there's a, a family element that people from somewhere far off are sending a letter to somebody, somebody very far off, brothers. There's a, a family element going on. It says, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to, lay, and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Here's where things get weird that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And so after reading that, you might be like, what in the world? Strangled animals, blood, don't eat these things. Does this apply to me? Does this apply to Arby? That's a bad joke, I'm sorry. Um, does this apply to me in today's world? And I get that this is a little bit weird, but we hope to make sense of this by the end of our time today. Um, and so the, the thrust of today that I want us to be able to kind of begin to wrap our mind around is that I think that this letter, in part, was written to the church in Antioch to promote unity within the church, even through diversity that they were experiencing. He wished to promote unity within the church through the diversity that they were experiencing. Now, but to, be, to really understand this, we need to go back and get a little bit of context um, for why this letter was needed. So if we go, and we don't have to go back very far, Stephen preached on this a couple of weeks ago, back to the beginning of chapter 15, we see that there was a dispute, a really, a, a rather large, important dispute going on between the Jewish Christians in Antioch and the new Gentile convert Christians. This, and this dispute was that there were unauthorized Jewish teachers called Judaizers, who were teaching and demanding that the Gentiles first become Jewish before they could come into the family of God and be saved. That they must follow the law of the Jewish customs. But most specifically, if you remember in chapter 15, it says that they must be circumcised before they could be saved. 
See, what the Jews were doing here, this was causing the dispute, they were looking for the Gentiles to fully assimilate into their culture and traditions, to to become Jewish. That's what assimilation means. The problem was the new covenant that Jesus had brought to the Gentiles, this was actually not what was going on. The, The new covenant Jesus was bringing was not meant to be made up of a homogenous group of people. Just like, the, like just one group of people, the Jews, but it's actually meant to go to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so the, when the Gentiles heard this, they would have been perplexed. Like, this is not what we thought we had been told. This is not the gospel that had been preached to us. This is not the Jesus that we had been told to surrender our lives to and follow. It seemed counter to the gospel of grace presented to them. Because we see in verses like Galatians 3.28 where it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So what the Jews were asking the Greeks to do seemed counter to what they had been preached to before. So this obviously this dispute would have led to some significant consequences for them. So this is the next part, the consequences of this dispute. First and foremost, this dispute had completely muddied the gospel message of grace. The Jewish expectation of the Gentiles was one of the first forms of Christian legalism that we see arise in the church. The Jews in Antioch were preaching a Jesus and gospel to the Gentiles. Even though the Gentiles were already Christians, they were were teaching a Jesus and gospel. They were saying, you Gentiles must follow Jesus and be circumcised. You have to follow Jesus and adhere to dietary restrictions. You have to follow Jesus and become just like us to be saved. And this is antithetical to the gospel. Any type of legalism is antithetical to the gospel. What legalism is, is it is working, this baseline definition, it is working for our salvation. Where we are not getting salvation through grace alone, through faith alone, it is because of what we do. So legalism is antithetical to the gospel message. The, the purity of the gospel message to the Gentiles had been corrupted. Instead of grace alone through faith alone, it was now grace along with all these other rules to keep. And then we see back in the passage that this troubled and unsettled the hearts of the Gentiles. And rightly so. This was not the message they'd been preached or decided to follow. So that was the first thing. It muddied the, the waters. The second consequence was it sowed discord, and this is where we're going to hang out for the remainder of our time. And so discord among the church and those who followed Jesus. A clear dividing line had been made between the Jews and the Gentiles. You see, the Jews, they believed that they were the original people of God and the Messiah was sent only for them, and they believed that Christianity was mainly a political movement within Judaism. And so then the Gentiles were introduced into this. There became this clear dividing line of superiority of we were God's original people and you were lowly, unclean Gentiles. And so you must become like me. You must become like us before you can stand on equal footing before the cross of Jesus Christ. And so obviously this would have caused disunity among the church. And this disunity was primarily among ethnic and cultural lines, Jews and the rest of the Gentiles. And so the apostles and the elders, we see that they had to remedy this situation because disunity was happening in the church. The church was kind of being ripped apart somewhat. 
and they had to remedy this. So the apostles knew that the gospel was meant for all people, not just the Jews, and they, were con- they would have been concerned about the Gentile witness to, the other, to other Gentile nations about the gospel going forward, so they had to stop this. And so they called in the big guns. They called in Paul and Barnabas to travel 250 miles to discuss and dispute um, and debate what was going on with this, in this church. And, this is what, and when all these people gathered together to, to debate this, this is what we call the Jerusalem Council. This, this was such an important issue to the church at the time that they, they brought together a council to deal with it. This is a big deal. And the solution, when they came to a solution, and the solution is this letter that we just got. They, they all came to one mind, and they sent this letter to the church. Now, so the question would be, now moving on to this letter, is what did this letter accomplish for the Antioch church? What was it meant to accomplish for the Antioch church? And what can we glean from ourselves some 2,000 years later in Mustang, Oklahoma, in our church? And the first thing I would say is this letter meant to accomplish, accomplish was the gospel message promotes and protects unity within the church. This letter was meant to seek and protect unity within the church under the banner of Jesus. We, we, we see, we, I think we can be clear to say that unity within the church, we can go back to Acts 2, 42 through 47, and all through the book of Acts, and then all through New Testament writings, that unity within the church was stressed continually, that it was very important for the gospel message to go forward. And it was important to the apostles, mainly because it's important to Jesus, because we're talking about it is his body, his one body that we are all members of, and we are to be united. And so when the church's unity was being threatened, the apostles stepped in, headed it off right from the bat. Now I want I want to kind of go into this, this idea of, we talked about why the, the dispute began to happen, that the Judaizers were teaching some legalism to the Gentiles, want them to assimilate, but there is something deeper that was going on that was causing disunity within the church. I think this is incredibly important for us to understand. The division happened because of an identity problem. The division in this church happened because of an identity problem. Now listen to me when I say what I mean by an identity problem. Identity, when I say that, what I mean is the thing that makes you you. The thing that you most identify as. The thing that you think is most true about you and most valuable. The things that identify you. For, for example, um, I can take myself. I'm a late 30s white guy. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. Um, I'm an OU fan. I'm from a small town. I'm a Star Wars geek. I occasionally struggle with depression. Those are all things that are true about me. All those things, we could say those things identify who I am, right? But those things are no longer the most true about me. Those are no longer the thing that most identifies me because of Jesus. Because, let me do the math, I'm t- 16 years ago, Jesus saved me and I surrendered my life to him. Now, the thing that most identifies who I am, the thing that is most true about me is that I am a disciple of Jesus, marked by the Holy Spirit, and deeply loved by God. I am a child of God. That is what most defines who I am. Now, where as used to, 
some of those other things may have been what I believed most true about me, and I would function out of those things. I would, I would um, react to the world and to people through a lens of those identities. I no longer, well, sometimes I do, but I try not to, but function out of the identity of being a Christ. So my, where I reside, my gender, my socioeconomic status, my relationships, all these different things, while still true about me, are no longer my primary identity. And this is a beautiful thing because this is how we are all equal in the church. It's because we all have different things that identify us and make us who we are. We're all unique and different. But the thing that makes us all equal at the foot of the cross is that we are all part of the body of Christ. And the thing that is most true about you as a Christian, and the thing that is most true about me as a Christian, is Jesus. And that's what unites us and creates equity within the church. Now, th- now to say all that, to say this dispute that happened in Antioch was due to an identity problem. The Jews began to elevate their secondary identity above their primary identity. And when secondary identities become primary identities, I promise you disputes, difficulty are about to, about to arise. Let, let, me, let me riff on this just a little bit. Because when, when people I begin to identify themselves by their secondary identities, so maybe you're maybe identifying yourself by the, the, socio, the socioeconomic class you're in, or maybe the racial class you're in, or any of those things, you begin to elevate that thing that identifies you to the highest point in your mind, it be, and you be, begin to believe it is the most true thing about you, it is the most valuable thing about you, then naturally, without even knowing, you will begin to elevate yourself above people who don't hold that same true, valuable thing that identifies you. This is where we begin to see things like racism creep in, sexism, nationalism, all the isms happen when someone raises their secondary identity to be the primary identity above all. And then they begin to judge other people by their identity. The apostles and the elders knew this, and they were quick to see how destructive this was going to happen in Antioch. And so they went to swiftly root it out of the church. And so they were trying to protect the unity of the church by pointing out that it isn't your Jewishness that makes you holy. It's not your Gentile culture that makes you holy. It's the fact that you are both in Christ and that is what most defines you. And so as we look into our culture and we look into our church, this was something I, I told some people at the beginning of, of the week. This is have to delve into some, maybe some difficult things. But I believe at, at our church, we must be diligent and, um, and vigilant to protect against anything like that happening here, where secondary, secondary identities could replace what unites us most, our primary identity in Christ. Now, I don't want to put anything on us that isn't true about us, because by the grace of God, the well church in its, in its almost three years of existence has really not experienced any type of this large-scale disunity or have any large-scale disputes Definitely, there are people under there have people who have had individual disputes, but large scale disputes. We have, we've by the grace of God, we have not experienced that. But I do believe it'd be naive of us and negligent of me and Stephen as we lead this church to not warn us about cultural disputes that can work themselves into churches and can work themselves into this church if we are not vigilant. A church that I love deeply experienced this somewhat recently 
of where secondary identities became primary and tension began to happen. And it's been heartbreaking. And so if you've noticed, in our post-Christian culture, people are beginning to look less and less to the gospel of Jesus and the church and beginning to look more and more towards politics as the mode to achieve social and personal redemption. And as, as this begins to happen in the culture around us, the culture is splintering into two different groups, right? We have liberals on one side and conservatives on the other side. And not only are they splintering into different groups, there's a, a rising hostility increasingly more and more to the point to where it's no longer just somebody who disagrees with me, but that person that disagrees with me is my enemy, and I need to crush them because they are what's wrong with everything. Now, if you're getting a little uncomfortable that we're stepping into politics, I get it. And we never want to step into politics just for politics' sake. But when something has the opportunity to infiltrate the church and cause disunity amongst his people, I believe it needs to be discussed and headed off right from the bat. You see, the reason the church must discuss these things is because you and I are being inundated with 24-7 news cycles of Fox News and MSNBC and we only get about one to four hours max of hearing from the word of God about some of these issues. And so the reason I bring this up is we need to make sure we are careful that we are being discipled by Jesus Christ, his word, and his church rather than 24-7 media and talking heads. Now, I truly believe this is essential for us to discuss for, for a couple of reasons. First, the divisiveness that is becoming like the main characteristic in our nation, I think everybody would probably agree with that. There is a divisiveness that is just one of the primary, if not the primary characteristic within our country. And the reason that we have to talk about this is that we must, and this is what the apostles were writing to, to the church of Antioch, we must be a counterculture witness during this cultural unrest, a witness of a better way a witness of how to love each other, a witness that shows that disagreement doesn't have to equal animosity and hate, but rather establish a culture within this church where brothers and sisters who disagree on issues can still sit and share a meal at one another's tables because they are knitted together first by Jesus Christ, which transcends all political affiliations and social convictions. This is necessary for our church to be a counter witness of how to love each other in disagreement as the world around us is splintering in hate and animosity over disagreement. And so let me be, let me be honest. Let me, yeah, let me just say this. Um, there are people in this church who disagree on who should be president. There are people in this church who disagree on which political party you should affiliate with. But let me remind all of this today that still, the person that disagrees with you about all these different things going on around us, the still the most true thing about them is that they are followers of Jesus, loved deeply by God, are marked with the same Holy Spirit, and you will see them in heaven. You will see them in heaven. I'm, I'm, I wasn't going to say this, but I, one, of my, one of my favorite pastors to listen to, his name's Micah Fries, he said, that, he said this the other day. He said, 
he, he was talking to his church and he said, Christian in the room that's a Republican. He said, did you know that you have more in common with the Democratic Christian than you do with the Republican who doesn't follow Jesus and vice versa? We have more in common with each other despite our, our, our political beliefs, despite our social convictions, because we have been united by Christ. Now, I want to keep pushing in on this. This has not been something that we have experienced. There hasn't been a lot of disunity over these issues. We, we, our church has done, by the grace of God, a beautiful job of still living in unity through this time. But I want to continue to say it would be naive, naive of us not to address these issues and at least consider them. And so we must be ready to give grace and charity to one another, thinking the best about your brother and sister in Christ, not automatically thinking the worst of them. And so when the world looks inside this church, and hopefully when the world looks inside every church, what they see is a glimpse of a foreshadowing of what is to come in the new heavens and new earth when Jesus comes and takes us home. And hopefully what they don't see is just a mirror reflection of what is already going on in their culture around them. The church must strive toward unity and must be ready to defend it at all cost in anything that would disrupt it. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I want us to see is directly connected to it um, is that gospel unity, which is this, this letter is trying to accomplish, gospel unity is present. And I would say even more present and more beautiful even through diversity. That gospel unity is present, and I'm adding this, it's not on the screen, and even more beautiful in power when diversity is present. So this letter was attempting to preserve the diversity, but it was also trying to maintain the unity that was going on. So it was crucial, and this is why it was crucial for the church to show unity because the world around them was not showing unity. We've talked about that. But listen to the culture that's going on in Antioch. They were not unified in this area because of the growing diversity in, uh, around them. In Antioch during this time, there were as many as 18 different Gentile ethnic groups that made up that area and the church. That's not counting the Jewish ethnic group. These groups were intensely antagonistic. There existed much animosity and unrest, and there was little to zero social integration happening around the church. But it was the early church, and including that church in Antioch that they're writing the letter to, that stood in direct contrast to the social climate and culture around it. The Greco-Roman world would have been in awe and blown away at how all these different people groups, these different people groups who had formerly had disdain for one another, were now existing and flourishing as a united family, legitimately calling themselves brothers and sisters. They were loving and serving each other in the name of Jesus Christ. This would have been mind-blowing for the world around them. This Jesus-following counterculture, where everyone was equal at the foot of the cross, was integral to the gospel moving through the nations. This wasn't just something that happened. This was ordained and providential from the Lord to move this through the nations. Now, as this unity was being disrupted because of assimilation and hierarchies, again, we say the apostles had to step in. So what is, what is important for us to take from this? What, what is, why is it important that to, to believe that 
unity doesn't have to equal sameness. That unity in our church doesn't have to equal sameness. Because we should not, we should not wish to worship with a homogenous group of people who all look like me, who all think like me, who all act like me, who all vote like me. Because that is not how the kingdom of God and the new heavens and new earth will look. We see in Revelations that every tribe, nation, and tongue will be present. Diversity is important to God and it should be important to us. We should want and um, pray for this. Now, that, that weird... Um, list of things that they had to abstain from there at the end where it said not to, to eat from, not to eat from um, food, worship to idols, strangled meat, um, blood. I believe the purpose for those, um, partially, not wholly, partially, well, had to do with racial and cultural reconciliation. Racial and cultural reconciliation. Again, your ears might pop up on that because that term racial reconciliation has been co-opted by politics when it's actually a very biblical term. It's actually a very, very biblical thing um, we see in the New Testament. And so eating this food, here, here's what I mean by this, eating this food um, were, were restrictions from the Jewish people, right? The, they, this is something that their culture did not do, and eating this food was offensive to the Jews. So the apostles asked the Gentiles in this letter to be sensitive to this culture of the Jewish people and the traditions of the Jewish people, and for unity's sake, don't partake in this food that has been used for pagan worship and idols. Even though later in the, in, in the New Testament, we see Paul write that whether you eat or whether you drink, that he is saying that eating of this meat is not necessarily sinful, but they are being asked to not partake in it to provide unity amongst the church. But then what's also important to, to realize is what is left out of this list. The very thing that started this entire debate, circumcision, was left off this list, right? It was not present on the list. And this would have communicated to the Jews that it was not necessary for the Gentiles to become exactly who the Jews were. They did not have to give up their, all of their traditions, all of their culture, and become Jewish. So in both cases, the apostles are seeking to reconcile all the different races, all the different ethnicities, by pointing them to the fact that they have Jesus in common. That it's not their Jewishness, it's not their Gentile ethnicity, but it's that they have Jesus in common and that they can maintain their uniqueness and their diversity all while living under the banner of Christ. This wasn't just a band-aid to fix what was going on in the moment. This was an important decision made that they knew would help the advance the gospel message throughout all the nations. And so, and the reason being is that unity, unity through diversity, unity through diversity paints a beautiful picture of the power of the gospel, of his ability not only to reconcile people to God, but he can reconcile people, diverse groups of people together as a representation of his creation and his love for everyone, his love for all people. And so, Church, what I want, us to, I want to ask us to do is to pray for and celebrate both unity and diversity in the church. We want to pray that more diversity would exist in our church. We don't want, we don't want to just pray that God would bring my, more diversity just for diversity's sake that, so we can be a woke church, but rather we want this to be the case because this is a wonderful representation of Christian love 
that a bunch of people who would probably have nothing in common, that outside these walls may, not, may, not, may have little to do with one another, but under the banner of Jesus, the Holy Spirit can create this mosaic of misfit people and bring their uniqueness and their gifts and their culture and use them to serve the brothers and sisters in Christ and the family that they most belong to, the church of Jesus. What a, I'm, I want to close with this. One of my favorite stories when it comes to Christian charity and, and unity within the body of Christ, even when um, division or disagreement happens, there, there, there are two men, George Whitfield and John Wesley, two titans in, in, in the life of the church. Um, and, but they were known adversaries. They, they disagreed, not just on like political or social things, they, they disagreed like on foundational theological principles, like how to get to heaven. Like they really clashed, but they loved each other. And there's this story that after George Whitfield died, a woman who listened, who kind of liked and listened to both of them, came up to John Wesley and said, when you die, do you believe you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? To which John Wesley answers, no, I don't. And the woman, disappointed, goes, I figured you'd say that. And he says, I don't think you understand what I mean by no, I won't see him. He said, George Whitfield shines so bright for the kingdom of God. He will be so near the foot of the cross of God. And I, a sinner, so far in the back, I will never have the opportunity to catch a glimpse of him. That is a picture of Christian unity, of Christian love, even in, the, even in the midst of severe disagreement. So what I pray for this church is that we continue to grow in diversity, but we would continue to grow in unity. That even when we do disagree on things, that we would remember that we are first united together by Jesus Christ, which transcends all things. And then that we would, and then in Corinthians it tells us, and this is what I would be, what I would want for us is that Love endures all things, but love believes all things, and love hopes all things, and that we would believe that about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's stand. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Well Church Sermons. You can join us any Sunday at Canyon Ridge Intermediate School, 3600 South Sarah Road in Mustang, Oklahoma.